before we start, I uh, I do have a little housekeeping. Um, we've had a complaint. Have we? And this complaint comes from an anonymous source. And they say that uh, in our last episode, the Muppet Christmas Carol, there was too much swearing. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean, Rob, there's too much swearing? I could go back to the exact text message that I sent you, Sean. Uh, it does not say there was too much swearing for a Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, I can read between the lines, Rob. I know that your, your sensitive, childlike ears, they find our foul language quite abrasive, so... My suggestion is this. I say we do a TV edit version of the episode. Next to impossible. Um, are you aware of what uh, the TV edit for Die Hard, the Yippie line is? I knew it at one point. It's Yippie Mr. Falcon. Mr. Falcon. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, let's Falcon do this. This is the theme song at the start of the show. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Gonna watch a movie, got a thousand more to go. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Watching everything on Disney seeming like a chore. And since I started singing, they already had more. So stop wasting time on the theme song. Just tell us the name of the show. It's called the podcast What Tennis Shoes. Yippee Kaye, Mr. Falcon. What a terrible name for the show. It's worse than the theme song. Hello and welcome to the podcast War Tennis Shoes, the podcast where we watch and rank all 1,790 films on Disney+. My name is Sean, and I am here with my two co-hosts, Bob and Rob. And Rob, what are you drinking today? Is it a, is it a Die Hard themed cocktail? Are you drinking a Hans Gruber? Uh, I am drinking uh, an old fashioned. I, I looked for a uh, Die Hard cocktail online, um, and it's just uh, vodka and grapefruit juice. Uh, no, thank you. I will pass on that. So I just made myself an old-fashioned, but I put a branch in it to be festive. All right. Good for you. It's going to be very difficult to drink because it's shoving in my face right now. <laughs> oh, that just tastes like a tree. I'm taking that out. What would a Hans Gruber consist of, do you think? If you were to make a Hans Gruber, what alcohol would Ooh. be in there? Remember, we're pivoting to uh, Robbie invents a new drink every episode-themed podcast. Is there some sort of... German alcohol that's made in England? Like, where's Goldschlager made? A Hans Gruber would just be an extra large drop of Jägermeister. Yeah, a drop shot of Jag into, like, some English beer of some sort. Bobby, what's a good English beer? You are asking the wrong guy. Well, you're 50% the right guy. <laughs> you're English. You just don't drink beer. To make it even funnier, we could do Foster's because that's supposed to be an yeah. Australian beer, but they only drink it in England. So it would be a shot of egg into Foster's. I don't drink, but that sounds disgusting and terrible. It sounds disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob, how are you doing? Doing fantastic. Well, I was doing fantastic before I pictured having to drink that. The, Sean, how are you, you doing, doing? Oh, ooh, 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 how am I doing? Well, let's find out. Because there's only one thing that influences my feelings throughout the day. Our reoccurring segment, Did Anyone Write a Review This Week? Let's take a look. Let's take a peek. Did anybody write a review this week? No. Nobody wrote a review this week. Listen, perhaps I'm not being clear, but it 
does apparently help us out in the algorithm. It does apparently help us get more listeners. It does apparently help us spread our good cheer, our good Christmas cheer throughout the world. So please, listeners, if you do get a chance, write a review. What does a review sound like? Here's an example from a different podcast, because we don't have enough. (laughs) You said that so, because we don't have enough. You're just like... I'm sinister. (laughs) I'm perturbed. I'm peaked. And I and I thought to myself, you know what would be a good podcast? A podcast where three friends sit down and do a puzzle. I wonder if that's a podcast. <laughs> no. Let me introduce you to the podcast Puzzle Buddies. No. Here's the description. <laughs> America's longest running and favorite podcast where grown adult comedians sit down and do puzzles. Here is the five-star review. Subject line. Great theme song. Uh, uh, listeners, it's a good uh-huh. subject line, isn't it? All right. You know that meme where there's a guy eating pizza in front of an advertisement of people eating pizza and pretending to be hanging with them? That's this podcast. All right. So if you're wondering what our podcast is like, our podcast is apparently a guy describing to another guy <laughs> how there is a third guy eating pizza in front of an advertisement <laughs> of people eating pizza. And how is that not something you want to listen to? The review writes itself. Uh-huh. All right. Well, that's enough for that reoccurring segment, I guess. I uh, I got to say, Sean, on a happier note, uh, this is our uh, sixth uh, month anniversary. We're halfway through a year of podcasts. This will be episode oh 26. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers, boys. Wow. I know. Cheers not to that. Us drink, it's a big celebration day. Congrats. And it's also our uh, Christmas episode. I don't know if either of you listened to the Muppet Christmas Carol episode. It has a Christmas theme, so I'm just going to throw it to you guys. Should I return the Christmas theme for this episode, or should it be a one and done? I like the specialness of them being one and done, but I mean, it's a good theme. So it seems like it's a waste to just do one. This is a tough question, Sean. Why you do ask me on air? All right, well, I'll come back to it. I'll drink my tree old-fashioned here and think about it for a while. What's the song... In the movie, is it Beethoven's... Oh, the joy. It's Beethoven's Ninth. You could play on that for Die Hard, because that comes up a lot in this Die Hard. This is the theme song to our <laughs> uh, podcast. Well, this, is, this is in the middle of the episode, so the audience will already have known if you've done this already or not, John. That's just what I think of, because it starts off kind of sinister, and I was like, oh, that's like Beethoven, isn't it? That's the Drink Milk Love Life song, and then it becomes more prominent as the film goes on. <laughs> it's the Drink Milk Love Life song. <laughs> the kid of the 90s, man, what can I say? <laughs> I don't know this. What are you referencing? You don't know this? That was the commercial in the 90s. Was it Canadian or North American? It was some sort of like milk association right might have been canadian if we depending on one because i never had cable so yeah i bet you it was canadian i bet you it was like milk producers of canada series of commercials that was just like a bunch of farmers like giving the thumbs up and like a choir going drink milk love life drink that freshness if you love life drink milk how do I have no memory of this? Welcome to Canada, people. <laughs> That's amazing. Was the choir, was the choir, like, in the shot, or was it, because that would be better if it was just a bunch of farmers, like, taking glasses of milk, and there was a whole choir, like, singing at them violently <laughs> to drink the milk they were already drinking. Just a bunch of very concerned cows who were just like, this, is, this isn't normal. <laughs> what does this have to do with our podcast? <laughs> 
It's how I remember Beethoven. They added uh, three more, three more movies, four more movies. Anything of note? They added Amsterdam, but that was actually, I think, for our last episode. I noticed that. That seemed that was quick. Yeah, that movie bombed hard. Yeah, yeah, nobody saw it. That makes sense. I think there's more people in the cast than the audience. There, what's that movie? The lowest grossing film of all time? Some sort of weird Amsterdam? <laughs> no. <laughs> I know. Um, it's like some sort of strange road. It's just a bunch of Zeds and Ys. Um, and I think, I think Michael Madsen's in it. I could be wrong. Anyway, it, it's domestic gross is 20 bucks. And that's because the, uh, like a production assistant went and saw it and took their friend. That's the entirety of the, the gross. <laughs> okay. We are so- watching Die Hard. <laughs> Let's take it back. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that is what we're talking about today. In honor of our six-month-aversary, in honor of December 25th, in honor of the birth of, what's that guy's name? Tim Allen. <laughs> in honor of the birth of Tim Allen, we are doing Die Hard. I'm going to do a little background on this film. I'm going to take you back all the way to the year 1966, the swinging 60s. Mm-hmm. And Roderick Thorpe, the author, releases a book called The Detective, a hard-boiled crime thriller about an ex-police officer who gets wrapped up in a film noir-style mystery. And it's adapted into a film starring Frank Sinatra, released in 1969, Massive Hit. Roderick Thorpe rides that train for a while. He's riding on that sweet, sweet detective success. In the late 70s, he sees a film called The Towering Inferno, and he says, you know what I need? I need another detective-style success in A Towering Inferno. And so he writes a sequel to The Detective set in a high-rise tower, and he calls it Nothing Lasts Forever. It comes out in 1979. The thing about Nothing Lasts Forever is that Roderick Thorpe really wanted it to be adapted into a movie because The Detective starring Frank Sinatra was a huge success. And he kind of reverse engineered another success for himself. He was like, I should just write a sequel to that and then they'll make a sequel movie. And then he thought, but the sequel movie is going to have to star Frank Sinatra. Never occurred to him that they would recast him. And Frank Sinatra was like 70. Yeah, yeah. And so he was like, I guess the main character has to be 70. And so in the book, Nothing Lasts Forever. Serious? The main character named Joe Leland is 75. And he's not going to Nakatomi (laughs) Tower to see his wife. He's going to see his estranged daughter. And once he gets there, this 75-year-old man has to- Has to take the stairs? Die hard his way through the, the vents. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This is the whole premise of the book. The whole premise is that he's 75. That's the craziest part of the book. Yeah. He releases it, and it actually is a hugely successful book. It sells a ton of copies. People love it. His his whole plan is carrying off without a hitch. He's like, exactly as I foresaw. And then the studio goes, yeah, but does he have to be 75? <laughs> We don't really want him to be 75. And it never occurred to him that they wouldn't cast Frank Sinatra. They had to offer it to him because it was a direct sequel. So he had the right of first refusal or whatever it was. It was in his contract that if they ever make a sequel 
to the detective, they had to get, you know, offer the role to Frank Sinatra. It was written for him. He, like, wrote the entire book with the idea that, well, Frank oh, Sinatra's going to have to end up playing him, so he's got to be in his 70s. I thought it was a sequel that just took place, like, you know, not the next day, but it's the next year. How did the same stuff happen to the same guy twice? It takes place 40 years later. Man. He's 35 in the first book. He's 75. Oh, my God. In the second and book. And, like, Frank Sinatra, 75, that's some hard, that's a hard 75. Like, yeah. that's years of alcoholism. Like, dude probably <laughs> looked like 175 at that time. The studio was also like, Roderick, baby, I wish you'd talk to us. Like, Frank Sinatra hasn't been in a hit movie since 1969. We're not greenlighting a summer blockbuster with Frank Sinatra. I know you wrote this entire thing with that in mind, but... Dude is too old. We're not doing that. We haven't heard of a legacy sequel. This, you know, you're you're a little ahead of your time here. Yeah. They offer it to Frank Sinatra, but presumably uh, they're like, Frank, you don't really want to do this, right? You can you can you can either take this script and work or not work. What's your choice? And presumably he chose not work because he passed on the option to star in Die Hard. <laughs> And so the studio went to their second choice, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who also passed. And then the studio went to their third choice, Sylvester Stallone, who also passed. And then the studio went to their fourth choice, Mel Gibson, who also passed. And then the studio went to their fifth choice, Robert De Niro, who also passed. And eventually, at the very, very bottom of the list, they came to Moonlighting's own Bruce Willis, who, because I guess nobody wanted to take this movie, maybe the script still said he was 75. Like, I don't, why did everyone pass on this movie? The script still said he was 75. They forgot to fix it. Because eventually it came to Bruce Willis. He was the only one who said yes, but apparently they were so desperate for anyone that they paid him $5 million to be in this movie. Keep in mind, the budget was $25 million. So he was paid one-fifth of the budget. Wasn't it, like, one of the highest salaries? It was. Yeah, yep. it was one of the highest salaries of all time. And it became a huge gossip story. Um, yeah. It was, like, an Entertainment Tonight-style scandal where, like, Bruce Willis was being massively overpaid for this certain bomb. Well, eggs on their face, I guess. Yeah. But that's the background to the making of Die Hard, directed by John McTiernan, director of Predator, director of Die Hard with a Vengeance, tax cheat, I believe. Uh, tax cheat um, and illegal wiretapper. And illegal right, wiretapper. Right, right. I forgot about the spying. <laughs> yeah, unlike different yeah, yeah, people. Yeah. Some of these are good. Some of these are not so good. Director of photography, Jan DeBont. <laughs> Robbie, that's correct, right? Yeah. Yes, it is, Sean. Jan DeBont. <laughs> All right. Well, Jan DeBont, who would later go on to direct Die Hard in a Bus Speed. And Twister, right? He did Twister. Oh, Jan DeBont did a lot of stuff. I know, but those are like one and two, aren't they? Like, those were his like yeah, yeah. one and two first films. Come on, man. that That's kind of impressive. And uh, so it was written by Jeb Stewart, who would go on to write The Fugitive, and Stephen E. D'Souza, who wrote Commando. The Running Man, Hudson Hawk, Die Hard 2, That's Street why. Fighter, the movie, who which he also directed. Really? And Judge Dredd. This guy wrote a lot of 
bad movies. I mean, those are amazing <laughs> films. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, Hudson uh, Hawk is pretty good, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> arguably, the that's the worst one, but it's my favorite. <laughs> it is the best one by far. Uh, by far, I don't know. I love I love me some Commando, and, and that's why um, Commando and Die Hard is in the same universe, right? The uh, Val Verde universe, because um, that's the country they go into in Commando, um, and it's the country that the foreign leader is from Die Hard Two. They're both from the same country. That's uh, because it's the same oh. writer. It, the first time I ever watched Die Hard, or most of Die Hard, is also the first time Sean ever watched Commando. We watched them in the same night. What? That sounds like an amazing night. Yeah. Damn it. I'll finish the story later. All right. <laughs> Bobby, how does this movie begin? This is John McClane on a plane. <laughs> well, now you have to do the rest of the podcast rhyming. <laughs> yeah, it's him seated on a plane chatting with the guy next to him. Um, and he has hair. And he has hair. That's the first. I mean, I made that note too. Like Bruce Willis with hair. Bruce Willis yep. is interesting because he's one of the few actors in the world to just lose his hair and get old. But he he was bald for a long time. He's bald for a long time, but like a lot of actors like you know they're maybe kind of bald in one movie and then the next movie they're just like I don't know what you're talking about. I rub some cream on my head. There's no problems. <laughs> yeah, that's the Matthew McShirtless <laughs> yeah, 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 approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got gotcha. you. Picking up which foot now. I really mean that in a positive way. As I say, it's like you don't like Hollywood like most dudes are like full of hair transplants and things like that and Bruce Willis just went bald and like kept being Bruce Willis kept being badass I uh, I made a note here uh because this is the 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 setup for the whole uh film is that he's without shoes right because he has anxiety from flying and the guy sitting next to him says to take off your shoes uh and r- make uh fists with your toes on the carpet he says it's better than a sh- than a shower and a hot cup of coffee and I was like, that's that's the only thing that they had in the 80s was, you know, they've got, like, self-help. It's like, I was like, no wonder everybody's just on coke. Like, they need more therapists and, like, social services in the 80s because they're just like, yeah, uh, I don't know. You figure it out. Take off your shoes. Try something. <laughs> Ellis never heard of that make fist with your toes thing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So I do want to talk about this opening scene because – the thing about this movie is that I find it to be – and I was trying to think of the right word to use to describe this movie. And the word that I came to was deliberate. Yes, 100%. I think there's so much in this film, in this script, and in the direction by John McTiernan that is deliberate. And when we open the film, we start with – I mean, we start with a plane landing into smoggy L.A., the smoggiest city in the world. Holy Falcon, it looks smoggy. Uh, Los Angeles was the uh, Middle East of the 80s. It's just got that orange filter on it that they put in for all the Middle East war films in the 2000s. Uh, it's like he's like gone to a foreign country they're making it look like. Well, he acts like a foreign country. He gets off right? the plane and he's yeah. like, California. Oh, <laughs> what is this place? And so they have that orange filter on everything. You're right. Um, but so I also got to point out, we get the D2 style diehard text coming across the screen. <laughs> as epic as it is <laughs> D2 on D2. Style. <laughs> and then the first real shot of the film is we open on John McClane's hand and we see two things. One, he's wearing a wedding ring. And two, he's gripping the seat because of his anxiety over flying. 
And it's a fascinating choice. First of all, the wedding ring and his relationship with Holly is a very complicated relationship. And they provide the context of that relationship in very subtle ways throughout the movie. And it's yeah. very fascinating that they choose to open with a shot of that wedding ring. <laughs> subtle ways. But we'll get to the scene with Argyle. <laughs> some are subtle some are less subtle some are exposition yeah. heavy yeah, yeah. and the second thing is he's gripping the seat and it's also fascinating that this movie opens with our male lead hero in fear yep over a very trivial thing and so you open with john McClane in an extremely vulnerable position showing him extremely weak in some ways, they carry that throughout the entire film. I'm going to talk about it, but this movie has a very Indiana Jones style approach to its hero, where he is constantly in over his head and constantly getting his ascot handed to him. And yet he just has to just keep pushing forward. I think what makes this film stand out is that it's a movie. A lot of action movies are just mindless... Not movies! ...nonsense. <laughs> Everyone has their arcs, there's a story, they're trying to tell a story, and as you say, the characters are actually nuanced. Like it's In Commando, we know that Arnold Schwarzenegger loves his daughter because he feeds a deer with her and carries a tree. That's the only character growth we get. But in this... They they actually, yeah, give all of the characters yeah. something to do. They, As you said, they're three-dimensional characters. It's not just tree lifting and deer feeding. As I said, I think the script is deliberate. I wouldn't yeah. say everything in it is particularly good. And we'll get into that and what I think that means for the movie. But you say that every character has an arc. Uh, I'll get into this in more detail later on. But I would say there are two characters that have arcs. Neither of them are John McClane. But we can get yeah, to that. That's fair. I know, I know yeah, who yeah. the other character is. It's, it's, it's Carl Winslow. <laughs> it is Carl Winslow. It's Carl Winslow. And his arc is horrifying. Yes, it is. And In context yeah. today. This just kind of harken back to my younger days, but that when John reaches up into the overhead compartment for the teddy bear he's giving to his daughter, he just has his handgun on on the plane. He just, like, brought his gun on the plane and is like, relax, I'm a cop. And you're like, oh, yeah, I remember pre-9-11 when, like, sure. like that could just happen. Could it, though? I mean, I guess it could have, but he's not a U.S. Marshal. He's a New York cop. How did they have the authority to carry a gun I, I think plane. he did. I think that was a thing. I mean, I didn't do any research of it, but it, I think it's a thing. That they could just carry their gun yeah. if they had a permit in a state yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And they were a cop? I don't know. That fucking country. Welcome, <laughs> all of our American listeners. Anyway, um... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then I like, too, that I think he's, like, when he gets into the airport, he's just, like, smoking, waiting for his bags. Oh, there's like, oh, yeah, so like, much smoking. guns on planes. Oh, the he 80s. just smoke in the airport. Wow, what a time. He's in smoggy Middle East L.A., and he's smoking <laughs> his cigarette, and a woman comes up and embraces a man beside him and gives him a kiss. And he's physically repulsed at the, at the idea of public displays of affection. He's just like, oh my, California, these San Francisco hippies and their liberals and they're kissing in public. Um, that was all Joel Silver, apparently. The stewardess who eyes him up on the plane, the, the, the lady in the, uh, tracksuit. Uh, in the yoga pants, uh, and I think the nudity in the office later was all Joel Silver. He was just like, yeah, we got, we got to put some nudity in this. We got to sex this up a bit. All right. Yeah. Well, it is the eighties and it is an action blockbuster. I think this is the first film we've watched that has nudity in it. Well, we did watch a movie where Zoe Saldana's computer generated 
blue breasts were in every single frame that she appeared in. So no, That's this fair. isn't the first film with nudity. And uh, were the country bears always wearing clothes? I can't remember. I think some of them are just wearing maybe shirts, but no pants. All right. Oh, yeah, they, were they were winning, winning the pooing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this is the third movie. With All right. nudity. Yeah. yeah. So this is the first movie with human nudity. So we had we had CGI nudity, we had Jim Henson nudity. That's true, and all of them all of the Muppets are naked. Yeah. We've done a lot of nudity actually. This is the twenty-sixth movie, but four of them are just full of nudity. <laughs> it's more than I would have expected for this podcast, to be perfectly honest. John McClane would not approve of this podcast. There's far too much nudity. That's a lie. He likes nudity. He double takes he he talks to that naked lady poster in the Hakatom like plaza like a couple times yeah oh yeah you're right yeah he approves of nudity just not public displays of affection two totally different things um but as he's leaving the airport um you're introduced to argyle uh because he notices that there is somebody holding up a sign with his name on it and he was just going to take a cab so before he gets into argyle's limo we cut to the nakatomi tower i want to talk a bit about the tower here because we're introducing the tower it's uh iconic everyone knows the nakatomi plaza um it's actually just the 20th century fox headquarters yep mm-hmm. and it's the old backlot of 20th century studios that they had to sell after cleopatra bombed at the box office and they turned it into office towers <laughs> and uh and that's why uh bruce willis got so much money right is because they could just shoot on location in their office building that's hollywood accounting baby so yeah. we are introduced to the nakatomi company which is where uh john mcclain's wife holly mcclain or holly Gennaro, is now working as a vice president of some sort she has a a high ranking business career at nakatomi plaza and i do want to point out that this movie treads a line and i think steps over the line a little bit about there's some 80s japanophobia in this film for sure in the 80s you got a lot of this fear of japanese electronic companies taking over the world economy japanese companies buying out american companies who are going to stop the japanese michael crichton wrote a whole book about it called Rising Sun. And it's xenophobic to a large degree. And this movie plays into it a few times. Um, In the uh, main lobby where this Christmas party is taking place, there is a lot of um, architecture that is lifted entirely from Frank Lloyd Wright. And the director and the writers and the uh, set designers were intentionally doing that to play into the idea of Japanese companies basically uh, purchasing and taking over American iconography. And that is kind of the undercurrent of a lot of what's going on here. The uh, Japanese CEO Takagi makes a couple of jokes about Pearl Harbor at times, and it's played for laughs, and they're, a very, they're very friendly, but it's one of these underlying things where you're like, there's so much going on in the 80s. Oh, the 80s. I just thought back on a couple of other movies I remember from this era, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's a thing. That's definitely a thing. Yeah. I, I've i never watched this movie with a critical eye. I've always watched it with a, oh my goodness, we're watching Die Hard, Hard again. It must be Christmas. Uh, I, uh, which is usually a, a couple of eggnogs or old fashions deep. You've dropped a few Hans Grubers at that point? I dropped a few Hans Grubers. I never really picked up on that. But as you're saying it, I get what you're, I get what you're saying. I had a question why Holly Gennaro, Holly McLean is the vice president. I was like, is this, was this something like to cater to the U.S. crowd? Did they hire her, her so she could ha- hire the, like, do- like the domestic staff, like the people from California? Like, was that something? So 
what I assume it is, is they probably had a corporate structure similar to Nintendo, where there is <laughs> uh, Nakatomi of Japan that owns Nakatomi of America. And Nakatomi okay. of America is a separate corporate body that runs the American business. There is a Japanese-American CEO that acts as kind of a liaison between the parent company and the American okay. body. But then most of the American staff will be Americans okay. because they're operating American business. Um, if we're talking about the introduction uh, at Nakatomi Tower, I did want to point out one thing. Uh, the first shot in the building, I think, is of Mr. Takagi. It's kind of the slow panning shot. It cuts back and forth, I think, between the drive and in there, but it was clearly done in one take. And then it kind of zooms in, and you see Holly walking through a hallway, and it goes down into the party, and then, like, the camera kind of zooms into her. So it follows from Takagi to Holly, and it's this really good shot. Like, yeah. it's establishing the location and the characters in yeah. this, like, one seamless shot while there's like uh diegetic kind of like symphony music playing in the background to establish yeah. the the Christmas party aspect of it. I was like that is as you said efficient like and deliberate. It was really good. Blown away by that shot. Like it's just like this simple shot, but the storytelling in it was great. I completely agree. I wrote down that shot. And the yeah. the zoom in to Holly is my favorite part of the shot because it introduces yeah, yeah. Takagi as the head of the party. It introduces that there that this is a Japanese company with a Japanese head and then the camera establishes the location. So you have the geography of the set and you know what's going to happen throughout the rest of the movie. And then you get this zoom. And at first, you're not sure what it's zooming into. And you can see that it's following a particular person on the other side of the room. And then it follows her into a hallway. And you're like, oh, this must be important because that's what the camera is showing you. They're like, this person is important. Yeah. It's zooming into the person. And that's Holly. And she is walking with Ellis, who is this Donald Trump junior looking <laughs> mr falcon yeah he's uh he's like he is donald trump jr it's quite funny there was some copycat going on there <laughs> i don't know why donald trump jr has modeled his appearance after what is clearly a coke addict you would think he would want to lean away from the coke addict stereotype <laughs> i just i am honestly confused all right so holly is walking down the hallway with donald trump jr and Donald Trump Jr. is hitting on her. And there are three pieces of information right in a row, which are very important for the context. And you establish the entire background of this character and her relationship with John McClane very quickly. Donald Trump Jr. is hitting on her and offers to take her out for dinner. She turns him down, but doesn't mention the fact that she's married. And so you already know that her marriage is not either public information or... It is not something that would prevent her from going out on a date because that would be obviously the first thing that you would say. Then secondly, she walks into her office and her assistant says, uh, here's the documents you wanted, Miss Gennaro. Establishes that her name is Gennaro, at which point she gets on the phone and calls her kids and her daughter answers the phone and says, McLean residence, Lucy McLean speaking. And then Holly says, hello, Lucy McLean. It's your mother speaking. And already you have the entire context of this complicated relationship that she has with John McLean, who you already know still wears his wedding ring. And after all of that, you cut back to the cab 
where John McClane that explicitly lays out everything I said to Argyle <laughs> in an exposition dump. Okay, because Argyle, he's like, John McClane says, it's complicated. That Argyle goes, come on, man, tell me. Are you are you still with her? Are you not with her? What's your deal? And I'm like, wow, you met this guy five seconds ago. It's and a you're standard just- corny exposition dump excuse where you get in the cab and the cab driver's, oh, I got to talk to you because yeah, yeah. I'm a cab driver. I'm going to ask you questions and then you have to lay out all the info that you want the audience to know. <laughs> they even hang a lantern on it by saying, that I used to be a cab driver. And that, yeah, exactly. So that, that's what, that's exactly what they do. They hang a lantern on it. But I like the fact that they give you all of that information first, subtly through context clues. And then they explicitly tell you for their like, for those in the cheap seats who didn't pick up on this, we're going to tell you it anyway, because it is important information to understand the film. But yeah. You know, so here here it is for those that didn't pick up on it. So you get this opportunity to kind of feel smarter than the movie at times because you're like, oh, I already picked up on that, you know, and I like that. I got three notes here. Uh, two of them are the 80s are really weird. And one of them is just something that you'll probably cut. But um, Ellis says his idea of going out with her is finding some sort of a nice aged brie like who Falcon. aged brie. It's a soft cheese. You don't age that. Uh, and then, uh, the pregnant assistant says that she wants to have a sip of champagne and Holly's like, ah, that, that, that baby should be paying rent. Let's go find, go drink. Tending bar. She says that baby's ready to tend bar. Ten bar. Yeah. I have the same note of like pregnant lady drinking. It's the 80s. The other note I was going to make, uh, was who hangs up a phone without saying goodbye? Like I have that note too. She just she says, "What would I do without you?" And then just Falcon and hangs up she on her. She says, "What would I do without you, Paulina?" And then, as you said, Falcon hangs up. It's such a movie trope that apparently people in other countries are like, "Is that how people in the states talk?" This is my third time watching this movie. You've only seen this movie three times. In fact, uh, this is my second and a half time seeing the movie. What? This is this movie's still pretty fresh for me. How? We'll get to it. I I have a specific note for a specific time of the movie. Oh my god! Okay, I can't wait for this. I'm excited. Um, it's building up tension. Yeah, you've, this is you referenced it like twice already. I'm so fascinated. This is Chekhov's gun of stories. I can't wait for it to go off. They get to Nakatomi Tower. Wait, there's a freaking yeah. Sorry, no, yeah, I'm all over the place. There is a falcon. Um, uh, there's a. I said freaking. I, I already said Falcon. you're going to have to edit me out a couple times. <laughs> stop stop saying Falcon, Bobby. You, you can fix it in post. Yeah, you're just doing this to make more work for Sean, aren't you, Bobby? <laughs> no, the first one was genuine. That one was on purpose. I know. Um, I'm going to edit my own voice going, Falcon, over top of every time. <laughs> and it, this is the true TV edit, and that's even better. Now I want to swear to make this a No, thing. it's too much work. Please, it's so please, much Robbie. work. Um, uh, this your Christmas break is just you editing this. Oh wait, no, no, no! It's, this is coming out on Christmas, so you don't even have that. Yeah, this is this is your Christmas Eve. <laughs> this is your Christmas present, Sean. It's just us making more work for you, <laughs> Mister Falcon Bobby. Make me work on Falcon Christmas. <laughs> um, so Argyle uh, says uh, to John McClane when he drops him off at the tower, uh, "If you uh, strike out with your lady, uh, I'll drive you to a hotel or something." Right? She's gonna wait there. Like, Mm -hmm. was Argyle not working the rest of the night? Why is he waiting there? Do you not have any other jobs? Like he said, I'm going to pull into the parking garage. A, the building's closed, but somehow the parking garage is open. He lies. When he's talking to his girlfriend on the phone later, he lies and says, my boss thinks I'm doing something else right now. Oh, yeah. He says he thinks I'm on my way to Vegas or something. Yeah. So uh, they get to the lobby. Um, and John McClane, I think you guys are know what I'm going to say here, because this is one of the dumbest scenes in the entire film. I have a note about it. It might be the same. Yes. Uh, it's the same note. 
the security guard uh, I know, says, it's so stupid. Oh my god, it's, it's the dumbest. so stupid. <laughs> Uh, he says, hey, I'm looking for my wife or whatever it is, he says. And he goes, oh, type it into the computer. And then it's the longest, slowest touchscreen, like, loading after you put in one letter to find the person. And he puts in a Holly McLean first and nothing comes up. And then it's, of course, storytelling, again, to tell John McLean that his wife doesn't go by Holly McLean. She goes by Holly Gennaro. Except for the fact that he says the 30th floor, right? To the security guard. And the security guard says, oh yeah, the party. They're, They're the, the only, only ones, ones left in the building. building. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, honestly, I would, I would, a minute, I would choke time? that man to death. I would be like, what? <laughs> the thing is, is that I don't even find it to be an error with the script because if you have ever dealt with any like building security people, <laughs> They would totally do that for their own enjoyment. So he goes up to the party. We get another example of those liberal hippies in California where this drunken man stumbles up to Bruce Willis and gives him a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. And Bruce Willis has a giant no homo moment where he goes, oh, my God. Don't touch I, me. I, I made a note of that, too, because this is like, this is some 1980s homophobia, because he's so disgusted, he wipes the kiss off of his face. I thought you were going to say that we get this moment uh, in, ooh, California, because he had a cranberry juice, and he puts the drink back on the tray. That's what it was. He was expecting some sort of light beer, I think, but uh, <laughs> he got himself a cranberry juice. He was expecting a Jagermeister in a... Yeah, yeah, in a Foster's. Uh, John McClane in the party full of people. The, the whole Falcon party. The whole Everybody. Falcon party. He goes up, sorry, the whole Falcon party. He walks up, I guess, to the first Asian person he sees and says, I'm looking for my wife. And he goes, you must be John McClane. I own the building. Like, <laughs> what are the chances of that? But I have one thing here. One note I've never picked up on in all of my watchings of this film. Mr. Takaki says, Holly went to the vault to fax some documents. The fax machine, A, is in the vault, because that's hilarious. But B, that means Holly has access to the vault. The thing that the terrorists have been trying to break in to the whole time. <laughs> I never noticed that. And nobody thinks to even ask the woman. She had access to the vault the entire time. Yeah. My mind was freaking blown last night, man. Falcon. I said frickin'. He is taken to Holly's office, where they walk in to find Donald Trump Jr. doing a bunch of coke, as Donald Trump Jr. is wont to do. <laughs> you might have to put Falcon over all of that, Sean. We don't want to, to be bombarded by uh, by the internets. If we get some MAGA listeners, I'll be happy. Maybe they'll write a review and I can talk about something next week. <laughs> I need to put something in that segment, all right? Even if it's just some angry MAGA's... Defending no, Donald no, Trump no, no. Jr. No, thank you. So John McClane is introduced to Ellis, who uh, is there when Holly comes back from the vault. She's the only one who had access to it. And we get the lovely moment where he sees his estranged wife, and they both clearly have lovey-dovey eyes for each other. And then Ellis says to Holly, show John the watch. Right. And Holly says, oh, no, no, it doesn't doesn't really matter. And then Ellis starts bragging about it. It's like, oh, it's just something to show her how much the company appreciates her and how much we appreciate everything she's done. It's a Rolex. 
And right. this watch is key to the themes of this movie. It's key to one of the two character arcs in this film, both of which are toxic and horrible. I find it fascinating. It's so deliberate. It's so well-written and so toxic and awful. It's it's kind of like this combination of things I love and hate. Because um, the watch in and of itself is, first of all, it is a uh, a Rolex is a masculine accessory. It is the stereotype of a gift a man gets to celebrate a man. And yet that is what Holly has been given by the company. And... Ellis is bragging about this in front of John as a way to somewhat emasculate him and as a way to somewhat connect him and the company to Holly in a way that's telling John, get the hell out of here. She has someone else in her life now. It's me and also this company, but mostly me. Because Ellis has the hots for her because we already know he's been hitting on her. But you get this offer of aged Brie. Sorry, it just boggles the mind. John McClane says, I'd like to freshen up after my flight, uh, because he was he had the flop sweats from his panic attack on the plane. So he gives himself a sink bath uh, in Hall, uh, Ellis's private bathroom. Where he does so all of his Holly cocaine. Doesn't, you took my joke. I was going to say, did he get a private bathroom just so he could do coke in there? Is that the only thing? He's a businessman in the 80s, That's yes. The, I assume that was the reason why. He probably There's probably mirrored edges somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, he gives himself a, uh, a wash uh, in the sink, um, as John McClane is wont to do. You seem like this, this seems like this is a regular occurrence to him. Like he's just some sort of beat cop that just like finds a bathroom in a, in a coffee, in a Dunkin' Donuts and just like gives himself a bath. And then we get the story about uh, John McClane's going to stay with his old captain. Like, he flew all the way out on Christmas Eve to see his wife and kids, and they haven't figured out sleeping arrangements. It was a little funny, but, I mean, they had to do it for the story. I really love this scene, actually, because it shows just how stubborn they both are and just how incapable right. of communication they are. They're so incapable of communication that they can't even talk about sleeping arrangements, even though he's planning to fly out to see the family at Christmas, because neither of them want to broach the subject, probably because they both know it's going to lead to a fight. They don't want to start a fight, right. but they also don't want to know where this is going. They don't know what the other person is seeing. And the other thing that I like about it, again, from this deliberate script, is you get this kind of dramatic irony where the audience is aware of both persons' opinions on the subject. Because John McClane has already talked to Argyle about what he wants. He's hoping that he gets to stay with Holly. Right, yeah. Holly has talked to her housekeeper about what she wants. She's hoping that John will stay with her. But in the scene, both of them are acting like he's not going to stay with her, and John has made other arrangements, and they're both playing it completely straight. And I think in a different movie, they would play it as like a romantic meet-cute. Like, there would be the beats, where it's like, oh, do you know where you're staying tonight? And then the music would be like, da-da-da-da-da, and oh, I don't know, I was thinking maybe, you know. But it's played so under the breath and quick and straight Mm -hmm. that you don't even pick up on everything that's going on emotionally in the scene. But Holly eventually says, why don't don't you just stay with me? And they play it very quick, very straight, very natural, but there's a lot going on there. And I really love it. I love how complex the relationships are in this movie. I even like that right afterwards that it doesn't take them long to start arguing and yelling at one another again because they're both so stubborn. But as you say, it's a a very real relationship and it's very relatable. 
Absolutely. They both want the exact same thing, but they're too, as you said, can't communicate. They're too stubborn to, like, just say that. <laughs> they're both waiting for the other person to say it, and neither of them do, and so it starts a fight. And so she has to go give a speech because she's a vice president, successful vice president. Wait, wait. They're interrupted by two people who break into Alice's office to have sex. Because Alice has a sex office. Everybody knows that Alice Again, has the sex office. I was going to say that. <laughs> Alice, Alice has the party office. Come on. Like, you want to do coke and, like, have a good time? Like, you go to Alice's office. Thank you, boys. We were on the same page. I appreciate you both. Thank you. Alice would be cool with it. Alice would just watch. Yeah. You know? I wrote that exact yeah. line down. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, Holly goes off to give her vice president's speech. John McClane finally takes the opportunity to take off his shoes and make fists with his toes, which is the big precedent for why he's going to be barefoot through the rest of the movie. Very clever scripting device, but I like the moment where he's like, fist with your toes. Mm. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. Uh, 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 Bruce Willis does a lot of talking to himself in this film. And then fortunately, they give him a walkie talkie with Carl Weathers on the, uh, not Carl Weathers, uh, sorry. Um, what's his name? Reginald Val Johnson. Carl Winslow. Winslow, uh, on the other end. So he has someone to talk to because there are a few scenes where they ask Bruce Willis to do some, okay, you have to say this out loud. And Bruce Willis says, really, I have to say to myself, think, John, think. Uh, like, twice, three times he has to say that in different scenes. I do like how they establish the president that he talks to himself. Because he mutters to himself all through the film. He gets off the plane and he's like, California. Ugh, California. Yeah. Wait, wait, you're, 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 you're changing my mind here, guys. Wow. Especially, like, as, as Sean kind of said, it established that he, like, has anxiety. So he's talking himself through it and talking himself down. Like, what am I going to do, like, to help deal with it? He's a guy who talks to himself. That's just what he does. This is even smarter than I thought. All right. And while all of this is happening, the terrorists arrive. Bobby, tell me about the terrorists. They're led by you. (laughs) Which I mean. (laughs) Go on. The first thing I thought during COVID, when you posted the first photos of yourself with your slightly longer hair and the beard I'd never seen you with, I was just like, gosh, Falcon, does Sean ever look like Hans Gruber? (laughs) And I've been thinking that for two years. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I finally had the opportunity to say it. And rewatching this movie, I was like, no, I'm not wrong. All right. So me and my German thugs come through the door and murder the security guard. They have a hacker character who is wearing a full collared <laughs> dress shirt, the sweater that Chris Evan wears in Knives Out, and a tweed blazer in California. What the fuck is this shawl? They, like, uh, intentionally put a lot of, like, sweaters in this film to make it feel like Christmas for middle America. Like, they they actually did that. But it's still like, this is California. What is this guy wearing? I'm assuming he's wearing a white t-shirt underneath. So he's wearing four layers in Southern California. I'm going to go back and make it, what the falcon is this shawl? (laughs) Uh, This is going to be so much work for you. Yeah. This joke has come back to bite me in the ascot. (laughs) While we're talking about him, I hate this Theo character. I hate him so much. The most annoying character in this movie. I think there's a wide range of acting going on in this movie. Personally, I do an excellent job as Hans Gruber. (laughs) Alan Rickman as well. Uh, Bruce Willis, a lot can be said about him. Most of it's good. 
I think, (laughs) in this film. Uh, But Theo, man, does that character grate on me. I just hate every scene he's in. He he was going through heat stroke at all times. So, I mean, the fact that that he even got words out that were comprehensible is like... That Shaw was a pain in his ascot. That's right. All right. So they murder the security guard. They get everything ready. They cut the phone lines. They take over the building in no time flat. They're very quick. The phone line cutting scene. Right. I was so horrifically distracted by the fact that the one terrorist has an angle grinder that is powered by an air compressor that, as far as I can tell, is plugged into nothing. It's Torch Talk. We're getting Torch Talk, baby. (laughs) Oh, we need a Torch Talk theme song. I, I actually, because I was like, okay, he's got an angle grinder, and I was like, why is the cord on that so thick? And so I, I actually rewound the film and followed him down the stairs, and he's got a backpack with some tools in it, and there's a brass fitting and a hose, but I didn't actually see an air compressor, and I was like, wouldn't it make more sense to bring a battery pack one? Like, maybe those didn't exist in the 80s, or... It was just it was just weird. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, anyway, he's not wearing any PPE whatsoever, no, no face protection. no. And then it cuts to Fabio, who has a face shield on. And I was like, oh, that's a good thing. He has his face shield for his chainsaw he brought to cut the phone line. (laughs) If Mr. Gray Ensemble is already dealing with the phone lines, why did Fabio have to cut them with a chainsaw? This is part of the plan because he's hacking into the phone line as well. Because John's John's on the phone with Argyle when the phone line goes dead, isn't he? He is, yes. Yeah, it is weird. I mean, it looks cool. To have someone with a chainsaw cut the phone lines. What was his brother doing if they literally cut all of the lines? He was tapping into one of them, wasn't he? Because he hooks something up to something. And then another thing to say is, uh, Ode to Joy, as you said, Bobby, is throughout this movie. And again, I've watched the commentary. Uh, that was a, a definite note that John McTiernan had, is he wanted to make it fun. So throughout the thing, like, it's about... Terrorism. I'm using air quotes when I say that because it's really every Die Hard movie is about people stealing things. It's never about terrorism. Um, but he always wanted to have it be fun and lighthearted. So he put Ode to Joy throughout the whole film, which actually it it really works. Like it's this huge uplifting song. It's literally called Ode to Joy. And it's like People are getting shot, about terrorists dying, like, it's this violent thing. But somehow, when you smash cut it together, it works very well. Well, he wanted people to think about drinking milk and loving life. (laughs) And there's really no other song that perfectly conveys that idea. (laughs) I'd actually forgotten about that already. All right, so Hans Gruber shows up. They take over the party. John McClane hears the gunshots. He looks out the door and he says, holy shawl, there's a bunch of terrorists with guns. I better get my gun and run upstairs, which he does. And then Hans Gruber approaches the party, announces himself, says that he's a terrorist, gives some pretentious, stupid terrorist speech. John McClane runs upstairs and he starts talking to himself like he does in every kind of stressful situation, like when he's just had an argument with his wife on a plane, or being invaded by terrorists. Those are the three situations that are most anxiety-inducing to him. And he says, think, John, think, think. Rob, although you pointed out that he talks to himself a lot, I actually feel that they didn't lean on it as a crutch 
to the extent that they might have. Because in this scene, John McTiernan conveys a lot with camera movements. John McTee or John McHale? Sorry. John McTee <laughs> conveys a lot with camera movements. And he does this at a few different points in the movie. But there are situations where a character will realize something or will get an idea. And he does this move where he he pushes in and then pans clockwise around the character up to their face as they get an idea. And the camera movement itself is telling the audience that something has changed in their perception. He does it when Hans Gruber realizes something about John McTiernan when they're in that scene together. And he does it here. John McClane. <laughs> I know you did that on purpose. That was great. John McTiernan uh, realizes that the terrorists have cut the phone lines because he sees that the phones in the building across the street are still working and he looks out the window and he conveys all of that without talking to himself i never picked up on that until you said that right now i i know the shot you're speaking of he looks across the street he sees a woman on a phone but he was trying to convey that the phone lines just to this building are cut which is what he realizes because the phone doesn't work and he sees that the phone across the street works. I'm going to have to put this movie higher. I'm just saying, after talking this out with you guys, I'm having to put this movie higher. This movie's amazing. Keep going. Oh my god, is it going to top D2? It might be better than The Mighty Ducks. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, it might be better than The Mighty Ducks. Hans Gruber, myself, uh, takes uh, Takagi, who is the president of Nakatomi of America, into a conference room and says, we want the codes to the vault. And Takagi says, well, what kind of terrorists are you? And he says, who said we were terrorists? We just want the vault and we want all of the money that's inside it, which is like 60, what is it, 14? How much money is it? It's $600 million. Isn't it? It's bearer bonds, though. So it's in, it's bearer bonds are payable to whomever holds the bond. So they are basically like legal tender with banks. I don't really know how practical that is to just walk around with $640 million in bearer bonds and expect that uh, no one's going to ask questions. One thing I will say, okay, um, with uh, Mr. Uh, Hans Gruber, Alan Rickman, uh, his German accent, uh, to me, now I am not the best judge of German accents. There's a reason for this. My grandparents were both very German, very, very, very first generation from Germany, German. And uh, I never thought they had an accent because growing up, they were my grandparents. I just, that was how they talked. So one of our friends had a German exchange student and I never realized that they had an accent. It just sounded normal to me. And so Hans Gruber to me sounds normal, but it sounds like it's Alan Rickman. It doesn't sound like he's doing an accent. Uh, and so I've never been able to really hear it. It just sounds like he's doing, you know, Alan Rickman always has that. Oh, yeah, he's got a frog in his throat at all times. It sounds like he's just trying to accentuate the frog in his throat. Like the frog in his throat has a frog in its throat. Like that's what this accent well, sounds the thing like about Alan to Rickman me. is that Alan Rickman, no matter what he's doing, just sounds like Alan Rickman. And so if he's 
German Alan Rickman. It's just <laughs> Alan Rickman. And then even in this movie, when he pretends to be American Alan Rickman, you're just like, that's still just Alan Rickman. And so the fact that Bruce Willis is supposed to not understand <laughs> oh, no. this is the same His person. American accent is terrible. Is lunacy, because you're like, this is just clearly Alan Rickman. There's one person in the world who sounds oh, like... Oh, no! No! You're one of them, aren't you? <laughs> it's one of the worst things. That was like something Alan Rickman was doing at craft services. He was doing his American accent. And they were like, you do a really good American accent. We should put that in the movie. And they did that. It's terrible. I kind of, I kind of like it for the movie. I honestly feel like it adds more color than if it was a perfect American accent. <laughs> in the moment, he's just like, let me try it out. See if it works. He has a gun Let's pointed. roll the Falcon dice here. He has a gun pointed at him. And he's like, I'm going to try to pull an American accent. <laughs> For the first time in his life, and like, I you can you can imagine the running commentary in his head where he's like, I think this is working. I think he's falling for it. This is really good. I'm actually pulling this off. All right. So um, Takagi doesn't give him the code, so he shoots Takagi in the head, and then he gets Theo to break into the vault. Then what happens is that John McClane gets the bright idea to pull the fire alarm which will call the authorities to the building. That will give them the attention because he can't call anybody on the phone. Pulls the fire alarm, which alerts Hans Gruber and the terrorists to the fact that there's somebody on the 32nd floor or whatever, the 31st floor, that has pulled the fire alarm. If I'm not mistaken, isn't that actually what the guy is doing in the basement because the phone at security still works? He says, call 911. Tell oh, them it's an emergency. Oh, good job. So he's plugging the security phone into the phone line before they cut the phone line. Again, I like this movie more and more the more I talk to you. So the, the guy stationed at security cancels the fire alarm. They send someone up to 31 to find out who it is that pulled the fire alarm. And you get your first action sequence where Bruce Willis gets his ascot handed to him. He Indiana Jones his way through this fight, just getting pummeled and falling over until he accidentally breaks this guy's neck. <laughs> and then yep. he ho 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 now he has a machine gun. Right? Yeah, down the elevator. I do like the bit um where uh Alan Rickman uh is giving a speech to the uh the, the, the hostages now. Um and he's basically at that moment is saying we have left nothing to chance and then the elevator opens up someone screams because there's a dead terrorist in there it's a it's it's a good bit yeah. no it's good timing there's a scene where um what's his name Theo is trying to break into the vault because they can't get, they need to get the password from Tagagi uh and it seems like he's literally just manually typing in passwords <laughs> like it doesn't seem like he has some sort of program if you're watching it he's just like typing things in i'm pretty sure he just guesses the password like that's his that's what i thought and i'm pretty sure that like that his guess for the password is just a variation on takagi's name I think he guesses that the password is like Akagi. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it means red dragon. Red castle was the English translation. Red castle. Red castle. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he's just guessing. <laughs> like he sold himself to Hans Gruber as like this hacking guru, yeah. and Hans Gruber's like, <laughs> "You could break the code, right?" And he's like, "Well, you didn't ask me here for my charming demeanor." And then he gets in front of the computer, and he's like, "Password one." Falcon, password Falcon, 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 Falcon. <laughs> it's like, how many possible passwords could there be? I could just guess. 
He takes the radio up to the roof, tries to radio into a emergency police line, which he knows about because he's a police officer. And he gets like police headquarters and he says, terrorists have taken over the Nakatomi Plaza. And, they, and they're like, sure, sir. Terrorists have taken over the Nakatomi Plaza. Okay, this is an emergency line. Please only call for emergencies. And he's like, it is an emergency. Terrorists have taken over Nakatomi Plaza. And they're like, sure, sir. Terrorist emergency. Sure. Yeah. And he's like, oh, someone's pointing a gun at me. Sure, sir. Someone's pointing a gun at you. And then there's like, bang, 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 bang. And they're like, sure, sir. Bang, 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 bang. There's a few things in this movie that are just... Like, a few characters that are just contrarians because they are written that way. Like, the principal from uh, Breakfast Club is a contrarian just because. I submit that they're not contrarian just because. I submit that they're contrarian because this movie is the foundation for all right-wing politics in the United States for, like, the next 30 years. <laughs> no, you're not wrong. I completely agree that I notice it's the only cops you can trust are Al and John. As soon as anyone above them comes up as a figure of, as authority, you can't be trusted. The only people who can be trusted less than them yeah. are the feds. And as soon as they come up, they do everything wrong and can't be trusted. So, yeah, you're completely right. This movie says we need a good guy with a gun and we do not need authority. Yeah, Anyone in a position of authority that, is yeah. portrayed as corrupt and incompetent. Oh, I have to drop this movie. Oh, no, I have to lower well, the rating. Well, and it's not just that. This movie says that the two greatest threats to the American standard of living are, A, anyone with a position of authority, and B, journalists. <laughs> no wonder Donald Trump Jr. modeled himself after this film. No, I, I picked up on that, too. And especially, like, we'll get to it later, but because uh, what the feds are, Big Johnson and Little Johnson, or what they're credited as. Yes, it's I so love funny, that. But we'll get to That's it. That's so yeah. funny. When when they're doing their flyby, the one makes a callback and says, just like flying over Saigon. And you're like, oh, he liked Nam. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. He had a good time there. He sends the message to the incompetent police officers because he can't trust you can't trust institutional authority but you can trust individual authority that's the way i want to phrase this this movie posits that you cannot trust institutions you can only trust powerful men who will take control of a situation that is why it is the foundation of right-wing oh man you know what that really plays perfectly into the unfortunate arc that al has both of the arcs in this movie al and holly's yeah. mm -hmm. are extremely toxic i think he has a shootout on the roof now because they know that he's on the roof because they can hear him on the radio basically this entire movie is just bruce willis trying to get someone's attention <laughs> Going up and down floors <laughs> It's just him going up and down it's the like, elevator. Yeah, it's not really cat and mouse because like every sequence is just him being, I'll try this. And then they're like, yeah, we can see you. And then they shoot at him and he's like, ah, and then he runs away, which I like because I like how much <laughs> this movie is him screwing up. Like he's constantly doing things wrong and drawing attention to himself and failing. And like, that's what makes him such a good hero because they're just like, we, we can hear you. Like Hans Gruber's like, I, I'm, I also have this radio. Like, Go shoot him. He's on the roof. And so then he almost gets shot and then he yeah. just barely escapes. And then they send Reginald Val Johnson to go check it out. So Reginald Val Johnson shows up and he goes, doop, 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 doop. And he walks in. Are we passing over the most 80s thing in the entire film? 
gas was seventy four and nine tenth cents. I, uh, I I I rewound it to to get it down because I was like, is that ninety nine cents? I was like, no, it's nine tenth cents. It's seventy four and nine tenths. What a weird fraction. Well, they don't use decimals because decimals are too close to the metric system. It reminds them of the metric system. Yeah, 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 you're right. They, they get a little anxious. Once yeah. you start using decimals, then you're practically a communist. So right. Reginald Val Johnson's <laughs> like, there's nothing going on here. And he's going to leave. And at that moment, Bruce Willis is in a conference room with the weirdest conference table. I don't want to go on a tangent on stupid things, but I have to go on a tangent on a conference table. <laughs> what is up with that conference table? How do you have a conference in that room? It's a zigzaggy table. Yeah, yeah. Person on one, it is practically in another room. It like curves. Like, you can't see them. It's uh, it's the opposite of the round table. Everyone sits at the head of the table. Oh, oh, man. Oh, my God. I think you just explained it, Rob. Holy shawl. When you look at a lot of modern high-rises, they are not built like squares or circles. They have a lot of angles in them, you know? A lot of times, they will have, like, pieces jutting out, or they'll be, like, kind of, like, crooked at points. And one of the reasons for that is to try to get as many corner offices as possible. Yeah. And that's like Nakatomi Tower, too. Yes. That's like... Because, like, Holly has a couple of a couple of windows, a couple of sides yes, in hers. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, in fact, if you look at Nakatomi Plaza, that tower is built so that it has lots of corners, so that there are lots of corner offices. And I think you just nailed it. That conference table is a corner office conference table. <laughs> so that, like, every vice president can sit at, like, the head of the table. But it's, like, completely non-effective because nobody's looking at each other. It's insane. But that is that is capitalism for you. I also got to say one thing. Who has a Christmas party on Christmas Eve? It's got to be said. I mean, please don't cut this part because only psychopaths have a Christmas party on Christmas Eve. A work Christmas party on Christmas Eve. This is like the height of like 80s neo-capitalism. So it's like, no, we're keeping it to the last possible minute. This is as Scrooge as we can get. Again, I think it's a subtle bit of Japanophobia to show that this Japanese company is literally throwing their party on Christmas Eve, taking them from their Christmas with the families. I, I honestly think that's part of it. All right. This is fluctuating up and down as we talk <laughs> through the film. Uh, and then we get the famous crawling through the vent scene. He's getting chased by the terrorists because he's on the roof and he has to escape from Carl. Okay, well, no, we have to say that. So he has a shootout in the zigzaggy corner office table room and he kills the other terrorists. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then to get Reginald Val Johnson's attention, he throws him out the window uh smashes Reginald Val Johnson's car. He has a weird freak out and drives away. And then we get Walter Peck on the radio Walter hearing Peck. about this terrorist attack at Nakatomi Plaza because he's tuned in as a journalist to everything that's going on. And he's, hey, 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 I'm going to get in there because that's illegitimate somehow. This movie portrays him as being illegitimate just because he wants to report the news. I mean, I know later he goes to, like, John McClane's house and it's it's sketchy. But, like, even before that, they were like, this guy's – you can't trust this guy. And he's just, like, trying to report the news. <laughs> it's kind of weird. This, I mean, this is also the point in the film where it held my attention because now the film holds three cast members throughout the Ghostbusters franchise in it. And that made me happy. Okay, what are all three? Tell me the all, all three. We've got Walter Peck. Um, you have Wilhelm von Homburg, James, who's one of the taller terrorists, who's blonde, who has the face of Vigo, the Scourge of Carpathia. Oh, he, what? Oh, yeah. That's Vigo? 
Yeah, that is Vigo. And you have Reginald Val Johnson, who is the police officer in the jail who lets the Ghostbusters out of jail to talk to the mayor. You're telling me Reginald Val Johnson is also a police officer in the... Has he ever not played a police officer? Has that guy gone his entire acting career only playing police officers? No, he played an ambulance driver in another movie. Yeah, all right, fine. (laughs) That's a side hustle. Like... (laughs) He is mostly known for playing police officers. Um, And so then we get the, uh, come out to the coast, we'll have a few laughs, get together. (laughs) And um, uh, I love how you flip that around. It's like the iconic line besides EPKA, Mother Falcon, Mr. Falcon. It's like you (laughs) set that one up. That was amazing. This episode is getting sloppy and I like it. And uh, I don't even know where we are anymore. We got Yippie Mr. Falcon. We got come out to the coast. We'll have a few laughs. So the Yippie line has been said yeah, by this point, Yeah, it's in the scene right? after John kills the men in the zigzaggy corner office table room. Okay. The reason I bring this up is because this leads me to my story. <gasps> oh my god, we're at the story! Oh, this is almost as exciting as Torch Talk. So the night that you and I, th- this is around the time we were all just renting action movies and staying up all night and all watching them. I rented Commando and you were like, oh, we gotta watch Die Hard. So good. And so we watched Die Hard. We got to this line and you shut the movie off. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I said, is the movie over? And you're like, oh, this movie's so stupid after that. This is the best part. Honestly, it's such a dumb movie. The movie's dumb after that. And for like 15 years, I went assuming that the movie was almost over by that point because I was like, oh, well, the movie must be Sean. almost over by that point. Sean. What? This is... It wasn't until I was living with Thomas, and Thomas was like, just looked at me and went, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Falcon Sean. So I timed it. It is one hour and 48 seconds into the movie, this line is said. There is an hour and 12 <laughs> minutes and four seconds left after that line is said. Sean. That I this... completely missed because you shut off because you said it wasn't worth watching past that line. This is almost unforgivable. Uh, I have no memory of this. I cannot confirm or deny these allegations. Uh, however, I will say, if this is true, I suspect I was probably tired and just bullshalling. <laughs> you were really tired because next I said, okay, let's watch the next film. And you just stood up confidently and went, Megando! <laughs> and I was like, Commando? And you went, that one! <laughs> Is that the origins of why we call Commando Magando? Oh, that is the origins. I remember that. That is the origins of Magando. Because you were so tired, you th- you thought that's what the title was. Oh the thing God. is, you stayed up throughout the entire movie. I've gone a long portion of my life referring to Commando as Magando and not knowing where it came from. Now I do. Please accept my apologies, Bobby, because uh, the truth is, is that the rest of this movie is pretty good, and you probably should have watched it. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there, um, and I just denied it from you for no good reason. <laughs> to our listeners, uh, Bobby has been sitting there, like, almost expressionless this entire time, and as soon as he told the story, he just lit up, and now he is, like, ready to go. <laughs> it's really quite funny. He's just been waiting, waiting for two hours to tell us this. Just be like, I am going to pull this Sean story like a bomb. And then I did. Anyway, okay, so this is about the time when I ruined Bobby's night. And for the rest of us, though, uh, it's only halfway through the movie. But really, <laughs> but really, the rest of the movie is just a lot of dieharding. 
so we can kind of, I think, skim over it. I think there's a lot of dieharding going on. He diehards in one room, then he diehards in another. They shoot out the glass, and he gets glass in his foot. Are we really going, like, fast and loose through the rest of this? Well, we can talk about what you want, but I'm just saying, for the audience... We all know Die Hard, and the rest of this movie is just a lot of Die Harding. So you're do- you're, you're now doing to the audience what you did to me by being like, "Oh, we don't need to talk about the rest of this." What, Sean? No, <laughs> so no. The audience, you don't really need to talk about the rest. Bad, Sean. Bad, Sean. This <laughs> <laughs> is all the same after this. Bad, Sean. A principal from uh, Breakfast Club shows up. He's part of the institution. He does everything wrong. Yeah. I, I think he actually is playing the same character from <laughs> The Breakfast Club. Changed careers. Uh, Reginald Johnson says, uh, what about that, like, that guy who hit my cruiser? He says, who knows? Probably some stockbroker who got depressed. Like, he's full of bullets. Like, John <laughs> McClane shot the Shaw. shit out of him. Those came post-mortem? Like, I... I <laughs> Richard Johnson got a little trigger happy as he was reversing down the street. Well, we do know he has a history with that. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. Yes, very fair. Then we get a scene where uh, the SWAT decide to storm the building. I have two things to say about this scene. Go for it. I like this sequence. And as much as I, you know, as much as it's problematic that the motivations behind a lot of this is anti-institutional, I embrace the fact that it also seems to just be anti-cop in a lot of ways. <laughs> it's just like the cops <laughs> suck. <laughs> and the movie seems to posit also that it's like the cops are way too militaristic and they don't know what to do with it. They storm the Nakatomi Plaza and then one of the cops while running through a bush, like, pricks himself on a rose yes, bush yes, and yes, goes, yes, yes, yes. ow, and winds yes. about <laughs> like a little baby. It's so funny. <laughs> I love it. It's so comically it had absurd. To be inten- it was intentional, too. Oh, of course it was. Or was it, like, literally, like, the extra they got who they were filming, and he just, like, pricked himself on a thorn, and they kept it in the movie? I don't know. It's too exaggerated to be an actual accident that they kept in the movie, like a stormtrooper hitting his head on the door. It's just too okay. absurd. But it could have been an improv that they came up with on the day. There's uh, three things I want to talk about in a row. If you think I'm going too fast, you can stop. Yeah, you are obviously going too fast. We know your history with this film. (laughs) So Ellis gets himself in the room with Hans Gruber, and he tries to try to solve the situation because he's going to hand him over what he knows about John McClane. I like this scene specifically for how much pain Alan Rickman is in. Throughout the entirety of the scene. (laughs) To have to deal with Ellis? Throughout this movie, he has been confronted with setbacks and problems primarily associated with John (laughs) McClane. You know, like, he has confronted every setback with nobility and confidence and is pressed back against it. <laughs> Except for Ellis. But when Ellis shows Except up, for Ellis. his eyes just disassociate from <laughs> reality. <over. laughs> and you can see in his face where he just starts to go, this isn't worth it. <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to shoot this man in the face. Everything that has gone wrong, and I guarantee you this is the first part where he's gone, maybe I could just walk away. <laughs> Maybe, maybe I could just get out of this. Like, maybe I'm too deep. I didn't realize I'd have to be dealing with this guy. (laughs) And then he shoots him in the face. Uh, And it's very rewarding. Second thing I want to talk about, John McClane gets the glass in his feet. And then there's the scene in the bathroom as he's picking glass out of his feet. And he talks to Reginald Val Johnson over the radio. 
Okay, am I skipping anything, Rob, that you want to talk about? I did want to point out uh, Jan de Bont's cinematography in this. Like, there's another shot where um, uh, Hans Gruber is talking on the walkie-talkie in Holly's office, and Ellis is sitting in the chair in front of him, dead, with, like, blood dripping down the back of head, and the camera just slowly pans around Ellis, keeping Hans in focus. Right. And, like, the... Dead Ellis is out of focus, but it's clearly there. And you don't notice it unless you're looking. Right. It's such a good shot. Yeah. Like, there were so many times I was watching stuff in this film like that, and I was like, holy crap, how have I not picked up on these things before? Yeah. It's really strange doing this podcast and, like, being able to watch these films with that critical eye. Movie I've seen, honestly, probably, I want to say a dozen or more times. And I've never noticed that shot with Ellis in the chair. Hmm. It's so cool. What else you got? Hans Gruber's master plan. So he hired Theo to guess one password and then operate a drill. That's the entirety <laughs> of Theo's skills. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, he knows to, like, I, I mean, I know, I know Japanese, so I could, I could just guess some words. Uh, and then, yeah, I know how to plug in a drill. That's his entire skill set. But then uh, Hans Gruber is relying on the FBI to cut the power to the building to release the seventh seal, the electromagnetic lock to the vault. Right? And we get our friend... Rick DeComen! Yay! Yeah! Uh, uh, Phil, uh, that's one I happen to agree with. We get him as a cameo here. Uh, as a city worker who doesn't want to turn the power off. I uh, know. I actually forgot he was in it until he came up again in the movie. I was like, oh, right. So he's like second Stephen Tobolowsky yeah. now as friends of the pod, isn't yes, he? Yes, he is. We've seen him so many times. Yeah. I love him. I love him. Prince Albert's own. Yeah, and then we get, it's kind of like the final bit of the movie, right? They turn the power off uh, to the building. All they're going to bring all of the hostages up to the roof, but little do we know. Oh, we didn't. We didn't. We, I mean, besides that, we were ripping on Hans Gruber's American accent. We didn't really talk about that whole thing, but I guess we probably don't that's, have to. That's all there is to talk about it. There's, the whole movie. I like yeah, the. Yeah. So, I like how the movie has a Wrath of Khan vibe, where the hero and the villain are basically just talking to each other over the phone for most of it, other than that one scene where he shows up and does his like, "Ah, oh, you're you're one of them, aren't you?" Oh. <laughs> like he's he's like a Southern Jimmy Stewart. It's like the weirdest accent yeah. you've ever heard. It is. Actually, you know what? I never picked up on that. He is a Southern Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> That's a very good explanation. I like it. Which works because everyone knows Jimmy Stewart from... It's a Wonderful Life, bringing it back to Christmas. Which is a Christmas movie. Yeah, there you go. He, he gets the glass in the foot. Everyone talks about it. He's got these bloody feet because he was barefoot and then they shoot out the glass. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's another one of those deliberate filmmaking sequences when they're having the shootout with Hans. There's a moment where Hans sees... The bare feet and then the camera does a deliberate move. It pans around him and pushes into his face and then he looks at the glass. And you can see the sequence of events and the thought process without narrating it out loud. But then, just in case for the people in the cheap seats who didn't understand, he then says, shoot out the glass. But he says it in German first and then when he wants to accentuate his points, says it in English. Because that's how two German people would talk to each other. Well, when you're selling it to the cheap seats, that is how you do it. In the book, the character is also barefoot. The excuse in this is that he says, I happen to kill the one German guy with feet smaller than my sister. And in the book, it's apparently that he just can't bring himself to wear a dead man's shoes. He didn't want to put Frank Sinatra in dead man's shoes? Okay. 
good. I, yeah, I guess not. <laughs> you respect him too much. He's taken the glass out of his feet and he's talking to Reginald Val Johnson on the radio. And they both get their... Yeah, the humanizing scene. It's their Dark Knight of the Soul sequence. Their lowest point, you know, he is bloody, he's given up hope, and he is talking to Reginald Val Johnson. Reginald Val Johnson tells him about his lowest moment, the mistake he made. He shot a kid because he thought he was holding a gun, but it was a fake gun, which in contemporary North American politics is an extremely... <sighs> Uh, I don't even know how to say it. Just an extremely tragic, it's a tragic thing to talk about. Yeah. After this sequence, it's edited and it's kind of broken up a bit, but then Bruce Willis gives his kind of like Dark Knight of the Soul speech where he says, I don't know if I'm going to make it out of here. And he tells Reginald Val Johnson that I want you to find my wife and I want you to tell her that I'm sorry and I should have supported her more. And I've told her I love you a lot of times, but I never told you I'm sorry. They're both confessing themselves. This is what they need to have an arc. Bruce Willis needs to learn how to communicate with his wife, which is true. They've established at the beginning. That is his arc. They've established this, and then he accepts that that is what he needs to learn how to do. Reginald Val Johnson shot a kid and now can't bring himself to pick up a gun. And so he needs to learn to stop being a wussy <laughs> and kill more people. I can't use that word to stop being a weak, a wussy, a wussy. He needs to learn to stop being a wussy and kill more people. Those are their arcs. Okay. I'm going to come back to this later, but now we can go to the whole, like they bring people <laughs> yeah, to the roof. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Is shirt. Sure, we're going to come back to that later. Um, it is a good scene. Uh, with Bruce Willis in the bathroom. I feel like that was the audition scene. You know, if you ever watch a movie and you're like, there's gotta be, this was the audition scene. This was the scene that they practiced six times to do in front of the casting director and the director and whoever the hell it was. I feel like that was probably it. Except for the story is that they were like, oh my God, somebody, somebody here, take $5 million. You'll do this? Fine. Please. Thank you. Arnold Schwarzenegger says, you would have given me $5 million. I would have done this movie. Never told you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Never told you that. <laughs> I'm reimagining the whole movie as Arnold Schwarzenegger been like, oh, I would have really liked it. You be kind. That was Gary Cooper. The FBI guys have got a couple choppers. I'm they, sorry, I'm just thinking about Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're like, that was Gary Cooper. <laughs> so mad. <laughs> Gary Cooper. All right, let's get to the, the third act. He jumps off the building as it explodes. The FBI guys, Johnson and Johnson, they're going up to the roof. Uh, they're sending all the hostages to the roof. I don't think we need to just recount the Johnson and Johnson jokes, but they're funny. Johnson and Johnson in a helicopter going to the roof. Uh, their plan is to kill all the terrorists on the roof when they think that they are bringing uh, personnel carriers to get all the hostages and drive them to the airport. They're banking on losing at least 25% oh, God, of the yeah. hostages. I said, what kind of 80s shenanigans is this where two agents have authority to kill uh, eight people? I worked it out because there's 30 hostages, so that's about eight people. Yeah, you can't trust uh, them. The bad guys are sending all the, ter- uh, the hostages to the roof uh, because they're going to blow the roof, assumably... Uh, that they are actually going to presume that all the terrorists died on the roof, too, all the while that they are taking the bearer bonds uh, and not being on the roof, right? That was the whole thing. Yeah, I, I love this idea that they're, that their whole plan is assuming that the feds will go, I'm just going to assume they're dead. 
and then, like, not look for them. Well, we'll check dental records in a little while, is what they're going to do. They'll just be like, let's call it a wash and go home. Let's, there's some dead bodies in there. Let's assume that the bad guys are some of them. The thing is, is that the bureaucrats and institutions that we meet in this film totally would do that. So within the world of this film, I, I understand that. All right. So, uh, yeah, like I told Bobby, basically the rest of this film doesn't matter. But <laughs> what we have here is he jumps off the roof. There's a bunch of great action sequences. Hans Gruber has discovered that Holly Gennaro is actually the wife of John McClane. All of that, what to do at the beginning about her name actually pays off narratively because he didn't know yep. that Holly Gennaro was related to John McClane. So he didn't know that this woman that he had been talking to this whole time actually has a connection to the thorn in his side that is John McClane. And so once that is revealed to him, once he puts the pieces together, again, with another moment where the camera pushes in and pans clockwise around on his face as he realizes and his eyes go wider because John McTiernan is is telegraphing it to the audience because he's like, this is my camera move to show you that someone has realized something. He sees that Holly is actually Holly McLean. He takes her hostage. He then tries to take her and the bearer bonds into his escape vehicle, which is a van in the basement. And Argyle has a moment where he crashes into the van. It doesn't really matter. It's a separate thing. It has nothing to do with the plot because John McLean confronts... I was going to say, uh, do you know that they had an entire plot, a uh, subplot they had to cut out of this film? Is it about that truck in the basement? Yeah, yeah. What's the subplot? There was a lot of, um, a lot of actually like setup and a lot of things they did, a lot of shots they shot where all of the characters had, uh, watches that were like set to the same time and they were all like some sort of European watch. And there was a shot in the truck when they're arriving to the building and they're all like synchronizing their watch watches. at the same time. Yeah, okay synchronizing their watches except for the fact that it's in the back of that truck and they couldn't fit the ambulance in the shot in in the back of the truck right so they never actually had the ambulance in the back of that truck yeah and they shot it all and then when they were watching the movie they're like oh there's no ambulance in that truck and they could not reference the watches throughout the rest of the film so everything to do with those watches was cut out of the film because the setup for it did not in include the ambulance in the back of the vehicle that's interesting i didn't know that yeah cuz they like did, they did a wide shot and it was like the back of this empty vehicle and then they like they realized at the end when the ambulance was driving out they're like wait where was that ambulance before hans gruber has taken holly hostage he's trying to get to his getaway vehicle with all of the money and John McClane confronts him Rambo style. He is shirtless. He is the ultimate man. And he goes, Aah! he gets basically Stalloning it up. He like walks into this room with fire behind him. He goes, Gruber <laughs> yelling like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and they have a confrontation. Hans Gruber references his Yippie Kaye, Mr. Falcon line. He has secretly taped a gun to his back with Christmas tape. And he goes, ha ha ha, shoots Hans Gruber, shoots the other guy like a badass, and then does a really stupid cowboy, blows the fake smoke off his gun for no reason. And he's like, yeah, I'm an awesome badass. And then Hans Gruber falls out the window and takes Holly with him. Because, yes, John McClane, you're an idiot. While you were doing that for nobody and saying that catchphrase for nobody, Hans Gruber just almost killed your wife. They're both holding onto the side of the building. Holly is being pulled off the side by Hans Gruber, who is holding onto her wrist. And then Hans Gruber pulls out the gun because he is now going to shoot John McClane. And John McClane reaches down 
And what does he find? He finds the Rolex. The Rolex that Nakatomi gave his wife to represent yeah. their commitment to her. To represent the schism in their relationship. To represent her masculine position as a moneymaker, as a breadwinner, as someone who is independent, doesn't need a husband, and is a feminist. He then takes that bond from her wrist and sheds her from the weight that is feminism to save her from the criminal that is Hans Gruber. The symbolism is apparent. It is toxic and is narratively awesome. <laughs> it's so well constructed. <laughs> yeah, it's all of those things. Uh, those giant falls from buildings, you don't see those anymore. They actually, that wasn't a dummy, I don't think. That was a person, I think on a wire, but like falling. It wasn't a wire, I think. I think they actually, I think I read they had to use Alan Rickman for one of the yeah, shots, yeah. too, because the, the, they couldn't the get the expression The slow motion shot of out. Alan Rickman falling backwards, yes, he's on a wire uh, descending, but but they cut to a wide shot of the outside of the building where the person falls. They obviously don't show it landing because it's cardboard boxes, but they don't do those ridiculously hundred-story high falls anymore. That was impressive. They just use CG now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's not cardboard boxes. It's like a giant, like, air-filled... Yeah, it's the Lethal Weapon airbag. Airbag. Yeah. It's a giant airbag that is on the side of Nakatomi, and it's, like, 30 feet high. But it's somebody jumping out of the 30th floor window of Nakatomi Tower of... Fox headquarters yeah. of Rupert Murdoch's office. <laughs> I do want to talk about this scene, though, because we're getting near the end and we're wrapping up our arcs. These all wrap up around the same time. And we have three main characters left. We have Holly Gennaro, a.k.a. Holly McLean. We have Reginald Val Johnson, a.k.a. Carl Winslow. And we have Bruce Willis, a.k.a. Uh, John Leland, a.k.a. John McClane. A.k.a. Frank Sinatra. Holly Gennaro's arc is thus. She learns her husband as a one-man wrecking ball uh, needs to be accepted for what he is. And she sheds her um, individualism and her feminism and her careerism uh, as an obstruction to her proper place at her husband's side. And she learns that by shedding the symbolism of her watch. And then immediately afterwards, when she walks out of the building and Bruce Willis introduces her to Reginald Val Johnson and says, this is my wife, Holly Gennaro. And she says, no, Holly McLean. Because in the 80s, mm, yeah, yeah. that was a rejection of what feminism meant. Because in the 80s, it was still a statement. It was still a not a statement, because I guess it is still kind of a statement, but it was still a... Uh, a shocking statement in some ways, if you didn't have your husband's name, but you were together. I don't think there's a shot of of uh, Bonnie Bedelia not, like, attached to the hip of Bruce Willis after that. Nope. Like, She's she, just and, on and his they, arm. They are literally like, that. that is exactly it. She is on his arm for the rest of the movie. She is on his a- arm as if she's on the cover of the Free Will and Bob Dylan. <laughs> then we get Reginald Val Johnson. His arc is set up in the bathroom scene where his problem he had to overcome was he was reluctant to shoot his gun because he didn't want to kill kids anymore. And he had to learn to get over that, stop being such a wussy, and shoot more people like a good cop. 
Which he does, because when they get out of the building, one of the Germans rises from the dead as if... Carl. As if they are Ghostface from Scream. And Reginald Val Johnson pulls out his gun, shoots him dead, and there's a triumphant moment showing, oh, he's overcome his fear of murdering people. Murderer. And... <laughs> <laughs> Just to hit it home, immediately after he kills this guy, Argyle shows up in a car and Reginald Val Johnson like swings his gun around as if he's like, oh my God, another black kid I can shoot, please. And like, yep. they have to stop him. And Bruce Willis is like, please don't shoot Argyle. <laughs> yep. Then we have the third character, which is Bruce Willis. And his character arc was also evidenced in the bathroom scene where he says, I need to communicate he with my wife. To apologize to his wife. I need to communicate with my <laughs> wife, which is what he couldn't do at the beginning. Perfectly constructed narrative. He then acknowledges that that is what he needs to do to grow as a person. He then gets to Holly. He then never apologizes. He never says, I'm sorry. He literally says nothing to her other than kissing her. Because he shows up like Rambo shirtless, kills the bad guy, and then they embrace and make out, and then the movie cuts away. And that's the end. He's also like covered, covered in the blood of the people that he murdered. Yeah. And so they don't actually pay off his arc. He doesn't grow. He learns that he doesn't have to actually grow as a person, and he just murders people like Rambo, and then gets the girl in the end. It has a very Grease-style ending where he, like, superficially acknowledges that he has to change, but then the woman changes and he's like, great, so then I don't need to change? Excellent. And then he doesn't change. <laughs> and in three, they're separated because he still hasn't learned how to communicate with his wife. Because he's still not a good yeah. husband. That's right. Die Hard 2 takes place so soon after the traumatic events of Die Hard 1 that they're still in sort of some sort of, like, adrenaline honeymoon phase, still trying to figure it out. But Die Hard 3 takes place so far away that they're completely split up. We tried watching Die Hard 2 once again at your house, Sean, but instead we all ended up just kind of not watching it and paying attention. And then you, Cameron, and I all decided to get matching tattoos. <laughs> I think that's the end of the movie. All right, what else did we have to say? Why... Why, why is it raining paper at the end of the movie? Number one, because it's just great visually, because it's it's supposed to convey yes, that it's that's it. It's snow. Snowing. And it's, it's a joke because it's LA where there is so no snow. And so paper rains down as if it's snowflakes, and then the music plays, Oh, the weather outside is frightful. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. And it's a great ending to the movie. Why it's raining paper, yeah. I think, is just because it's an office building that has lots of paper supplies and it's most of the top few floors have exploded. How many people they had to have employed to just constantly rain down paper for all of those camera setups? Like, it would have been such a giant pain in the ass and how much paper they falcon wasted to uh, do all of those takes so many times. Like, it was constantly... That ending... Like, the whole bit where they come out of the thing and then Reginald Johnson murders another person. Um, it's like, it's just constantly going the entire time. It was so much paper. You wanted to do the ranking of the, the Die Hard films? I think you and I have very similar rankings. First of all, my ranking is that Die Hard is the good one. And the rest of them, just watch Die Hard. But if you're going to rank them... Die Hard 1, then the first half of Die Hard 3 is pretty close to Die Hard 1. I think the first half of Die Hard 3 is excellent. And then you get a big gap. And then you get Die Hard 4. And then you get the second half of Die Hard 3, which is terrible. <laughs> 
and the worse half of die than hard die hard four it's just so bad and then you get Die Hard 2, and then I've never actually seen Die Hard 5. So that would be my ranking. I have seen all five Die Hard films. I went, I took, she still married me, but I took my girlfriend at the time to go see Die Hard 5 on Valentine's Day, because that's when they released it. I've only seen that movie once. It is no good at all. It is really, really, really bad. Uh, Sean, it would go another four or five steps down from Die Hard 2 for you. It's it's not good at all. But I actually like 1, 2, 3, and 4. Like, obviously, 1 is the best. Uh, but I find merit in all of the uh, the sequels, except for 5. Um, there are good things in all of them. Uh, Bobby, now that I've finally allowed you to watch this whole film, where do you rank this in terms of what we've watched so far? I was in kind of a weird mood when I watched it and like not the right mood to appreciate sure. it in the moment. That being said, as I thought about it and I remember the time that Thomas actually let me watch it for the first <laughs> the time. Thomas let me watch it. I actually had a pretty good time with it. This movie's a lot of fun. As I said earlier in the podcast, unlike a lot of other action movies, which are just like a dude running shirtless through the woods, killing anybody that isn't white. <laughs> um, this movie is actually a movie. And as we said, as much as it's problematic, it is... It is a real movie. It has stuff that goes on. There are characters. There is writing. There was thought put into it. You know, I think I'm actually... It's probably going to be higher than you might expect from me, but I think I'll probably put it at, like, number nine, just above Adventures in Babysitting. What about you, Rob? <sighs> so, through the course of this podcast, uh, it has changed quite dramatically, and I'm struggling with myself internally uh, where I want to put this film. Uh, because there's a few things that you pointed out to me that I had actually 100% truthfully not picked up on before. Um, this time watching it, yeah, the whole, uh, I killed a kid and now I'm gonna go murder more people, but I'm a good guy, Reginald L. Johnson, very problematic. And Bobby Bedelia's, uh, I'm just gonna be, uh, an arm piece for my husband, also very problematic. At the same time, it's Die Hard, man. It's Falcon Die Hard. This is the template for every action movie afterwards, right? The cinematography is amazing. There's a lot of really good acting in it. There's a lot of good uh, characters, the script, the direction. It's really good. Um, I am putting it... as number two. So it's The Muppet Christmas Carol, and then Die Hard, and then Return to Oz for me at least at least d2 is falling that's all i can hope for every time i wake up in the morning and uh i hope that this is a day where d2 falls a bit further all right so i've made my thoughts partially clear i think throughout this episode i think there are so many things that bother me about this movie it is built on so many toxic concepts that are very 80s that probably the filmmakers weren't even cognizant of while they did it, but become very apparent with the uh, benefit of time looking back on this film. I think it has an extremely toxic view of feminism. I think it has a toxic view of Japanese industry. I think it has a toxic view of institutions and vigilantism and police violence all of that and uh despite all of these things 
it is still one of, if not the best action movie of all time. I am also going to put it at number two. All right. Um, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Um, Bobby, in your best Arnold Schwarzenegger impression, can you please... <laughs> It's called the podcast with tennis shoes. Yippee guy, Mr. Fountain. <laughs> and that's the show. If you have a So we we shut off the episode and then Robbie in a very sad voice said, We didn't say Merry Christmas to everybody. So we're coming back so that Robbie can say Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. That is the worst Merry What are you do what are you do this is why we this is why I shut it off. This is why we don't let you control when we come back on the podcast, Robbie. Go to your room. Go to your room. And that's the show. If you have a Okay, so we ended the podcast for a second time, and then Bobby said he wanted to say Merry Christmas as Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he said it in a really sad voice. <laughs> so now we've come back for a third time. Yeah. I'll do all the hands. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Yeah, that's Gary Cooper. What the Falcon is wrong with us? And that's the show. If you have a suggestion for a movie we should cover next time, send us an email at thepodcastwartennisshoes at gmail.com. We can also be reached on Facebook and Twitter at Podwar. That's at P O D W O R E. And if you like the show, give us a good review on your podcast platform. It really helps us out. We hope you tune in next time. Thanks.